This episode of the Say What Again Billy podcast contains conversation pieces about drug use, sexual abuse, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to buckle up, because today on the Say What Again Billy podcast, we're diving into a story that will send shivers down your spine and leave you questioning the thin line between horror and inspiration. After nearly three years of banter and laughs, talking about all things paranormal from ghosts, UFOs, conspiracies, and everything intertwined with the paranormal, we are now taking a serious turn as we welcome a special guest, Stephen Drury Phillips. This isn't your typical podcast episode of the Swab Podcast. It's a raw and real account of a man who faced unimaginable horror and emerged with a story that will both shock and inspire you. So grab your headphones, brace yourselves, and let's unravel the chilling narrative that Stephen himself is about to unfold via a phone call. This is not just another episode. It's a journey into the depths of human experience, right here on the Say What Again Billy podcast that begins now. Hello, Nicholas. Billy boy. I'm very excited. It's Thanksgiving week already. Man, look, you know what? When we were doing spooky season, was cool was we kept saying like, I can't believe it's this. I can't believe that. But it was going so much like... It, it was pacing itself. It was going pretty quick, but it was pacing itself. But like, I blinked and it was November 1st, and now it's going to be Thanksgiving this week. Yeah, so. it's, it's, it is crazy. Uh, Joey is, we miss him, man. He's uh, doing his thing at work. So he did say that next week, the possible triumphant return of Joey Ayala. We'll see. But uh, it's just Nick and I, and tonight we're doing something very different in this podcast. As you guys know, that are repeat listeners, or you may be new and this is a episode that you are joining in on for the first time, Welcome. the Say What Again Billy podcast is a podcast that covers all things paranormal, conspiracies, cryptids, things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and the Lake Champlain Monster, Windingo, Skinwalkers, you name it, we cover it. We also touch on some health things that intertwine with conspiracy. We've done a few of those. And in the beginning, when I recorded by myself, because the podcast, if you listen from the end of season three on to currently, it has come a long way. I used to record by myself. I was figuring things out. I was using my phone to record. I didn't have mics, all this stuff. We've come a long way. But through the course of time, we've always covered, especially when I started by myself, We covered paranormal. We have never done anything of this nature. And tonight, we are doing something that falls in the line of real horror, real traumatic, real-life experiences. And we're going to be joined momentarily by a gentleman named Stephen Drury Phillips. And he has some story 
to tell. I've been told before that we should do some crime-affiliated episodes, uh, horror stuff, things to that nature. And this is almost in that category. Um, so it's going to be an interesting conversation with him. And Nick is joining us tonight um, on the first ever episode that we're doing of this nature. Yes, sir. And, um, you know, we, a lot of the times, especially you and I, because you and I, you introduced me to the show a long time ago when Smallville was on air, but when we watched Supernatural, and we will reference that a lot as one of our all-time favorites, one of the things that they did have, they had an episode where there was an illegitimate like family of human beings, and that was, to them, far scarier than any of the cryptids or any of the monsters that they would hunt, because you're talking about human beings. Right, so I think I remember that. Was that when they went into the cabin somewhere? In the I woods? think something like that it was almost something like it was extent. almost like a Resident Evil type of like family, right? Where that was a, a legitimate family of like I don't know if they were cannibals or they were hunters, like kind of like Craven Hunter, Spider Man, right? Like they would hunt other people. Almost done with that game, by the way. Uh, I'm about halfway through. I've been I've been trying to. I'm on the MJ mission right now, and I hear that it's whatever. Uh, MJ missions are always a little annoying. We got to rescue Dr. Uh, I think you're looking in for information on Dr. Connors. Yeah. Uh, not to get too off topic, and no, not to spoil anything. I mean, if the game's been out for, you know, a couple of weeks now, so hopefully you guys have been playing through it. But my point, my whole, you know, side tangent there was cryptids are scary sometimes. And we, we have fans that are like, they like to be scared. And, but here's the thing. We can't prove them. We can't disprove them. We don't know for a fact that they exist. Humans that do things are far, far scarier. I have heard Stephen's story. Um, I first spoke with Stephen, I would say it was at some point in August or mid-September, because time has been going so fast I can't keep track. He DM'd me. He sent me a uh, basically a synopsis of what his story was like. And uh, I set up a, a time to call him, and he called, and he told me, within an hour, um, his story. And I remember I was on my lunch break at work and I got off the phone. I was like, that is one of the craziest stories I ever heard. And then I Googled his name and he popped up and he has some tenure as a professional tennis player. And, um, when we have him on soon, we will, you know, ask him his, you know, his resume. But uh, his the story, I was like, wow, this is, this is, and I wanted to get him on sooner, but he caught me in the midst of Sleepy Hollow, trying to record out there on scene, um, you know, in the right at the beginning of where things were lined up already and spooky season was about to begin. So I said, listen, in November, I'm going to pick a date, we'll talk, and we'll pick up a date and we'll make sure that we get this story out there for everyone to hear. And uh, tonight is going to be the night where people that follow this page get to hear a little something different, a real life horror story that's not affiliated with anything paranormal, which, you know, as much as we love it, cannot really prove it. I mean, we got stories, we got pictures and videos, but can't be proven. But tonight's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, like I said we could go on and on and on. And we have, we've covered a lot and we've got plenty more to cover forever. <laughs> I mean, it's a great topic, but real life horror is that much creepier 
scarier because, you know, horror icon, you, anybody could say it, right? A horror movie, you want to know what turns a horror movie into not a horror movie? Turn the sound off, right? You know what turns a cryptid not into something scary? There's no monsters under your bed. That's what we teach children, right? Don't worry about them. There's no monsters in your closet. There's no monsters under your bed. Say that about a real human. Go ahead. We've got plenty of examples of them in our annals, annals of our history. I mean, you could say Manson. You could say Bundy. We could just keep going. But like, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler. There's the Unabomber. There's so many. Son yeah. of Sam. Right. We just could, to name a few. We could go on and on about, you know, and then they'll say, maybe they'll say the devil made me do it. But they're still human. They're still working. I mean, maybe maybe there are some that aren't, but these are, for the most part, real people doing really, you know, allegedly doing really terrible things. And his story, I'm not going to give it away. His story is intriguing too because, you know, I don't know what he's going to get into when we have him on soon, but from the birth and his him growing up, to the point where this crazy scenario happened, and then even after that, his this whole story should uh, actually motivate people. And like I said, I've heard it, and he's going to tell it tonight. So without further ado, we will dial in Stephen Drewy Phillips, and I guys, and I hope that you guys enjoy this very different episode of the Say What Again Billy podcast. You'll hear Nick and me on the on the call. And uh, we'll be asking him questions. And like I said, we hope you enjoy. Right. And you guys, real quick, before Billy calls it out, you, you've heard these other interviews that we've had where we've had people here. So if I get real quiet, don't mind me. I'm just listening and taking my own notes as he goes. Yeah, you won't even really hear me that much, to be honest. But just really, we're, let, we're opening this episode for Stephen to, uh, you know, give his full story. And the questions will be there. And then at the end, we'll, you know... Give all the ins and outs of where you can find Steven and some of the work that he's done because he's also he's actually done work through television and movies and things of that nature. Fantastic. So we're going to get him on right now and enjoy the episode. Everybody, I'd like to introduce to the Say What Again Billy podcast, Steven Drury Phillips. Steve, welcome on. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on, sir. We spoke, I forgot when it was when we spoke, if, if it was uh, late August or early September, but I remember you uh, messaging me on Instagram and uh, and your story was like interesting. We set up the phone call and we had a conversation and uh, here we are today. So to start off, why don't you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself before you dive into your, your story? Oh, I, I, uh, I'm an ex-tennis professional. I, I uh, grew up. Uh, um, I had a bad accident and I, I broke my back in four places and curved my spine from a really high fall on the cement. And, uh, I ended up finding a tennis racket at 13. I always wanted to be an athlete and I, I dove into that and, uh, played division one, played on the tour. Uh, used to be Ivan Lundell's practice partner was one in the world. And then, uh, I coached for years. Um, and then about five years ago, um, I had written a book, um, and I ended up on set. Um, as a background, uh, actor, my girlfriend at the time got me on set and, uh, I knew right then and there that, um, that I had found a new passion in life and decided to become a full-time background actor, uh, to learn how to make a film. And, uh, that was five, almost six years ago. And, and now I've been on set probably almost a thousand times. I've made three films and I'm we're filming, you know, a couple of different projects right now. Uh, so I'm a, uh, I'm a writer, actor, director, filmmaker, just, uh, to, uh, 
trying to create some content. Awesome, brother. That's awesome. And uh, you want to tell anybody out there that's listening some of the work that so they can check you out after they listen to the podcast? Um, well, I have a, a couple of short films um, that are on uh, YouTube, The Confession, um, All-American Addict, and um, COVID-19, The Apocalypse. Um, there's a TV show that will be released fairly soon on Tubi um, called Aces High. Uh, there will be, I think, three episodes for that. Um, and that is a um, that was uh, written and directed by Strike Money. Um, he was in uh, Eight Mile, and um, and he's a he, he does all kinds of things. Uh, great guy. Um, so that's coming out on Tubi. Uh, matter of fact, and um, we're just about strike with another film called um, Jason Maserati, uh, which we are in pre-production, and we will be start. We'll probably start filming that in the middle of December. Nice, good for you, brother. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah, and then a lot of other a lot of other films, you know, principal roles and part-time roles. But I, half the time, I can't remember what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you can remember your story because that's what everyone's here for. Yeah, and I want I you to uh, take it away and uh, tell everyone this extraordinary. We were just talking about it, Nick and I, um, just giving everybody the four one one about you know what you what the, basically a short synopsis of it. But uh, I want you to take it away and let everyone know uh, your your story right now. Oh, geez, how, how do I how do you wrap up a lifetime in a in a, in a synopsis? It's not easy. Um, uh, it's, 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 you know, roughly a faith-based film. It's, you know, it's uh, what I'm trying to accomplish is a message of hope, uh, to other people that no matter what happens to you in your life, uh, that, that you can, you can survive it. And, and not only can you survive it when, when you think that the darkness is just overtaking your life and, and the only option is, uh, self-destruction and suicide that, um, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not an oncoming train. And, and for years I lived, um, you know, believing that the, the, the train was going to run me over no matter what. Um, you know, my story is, uh, it, it's, 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 um, you know, I was, I was born, uh, my mother was a 15 year old heroin addict, um, uh, that was addicted to heroin. Um, I was born in Massachusetts. So, uh, abortion was illegal and she carried me to term, uh, put me up for adoption. Um, and, and basically nobody wanted me. I was very sick. I was born under three pounds. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of heroin babies, but it's not a pretty picture. And, um, I was in an oxygen tank, uh, almost for the first year of my life at around 10 months old, I was still in an oxygen tank and, uh, my parents, uh, you know, that I call my mom and dad, um, God rest their souls. They were, uh, you know, it's from a, uh, upper middle class. Um, they couldn't have any children. Um, they had adopted my sister. Um, my father wanted a son. Uh, he went to uh, the state and they said, yeah, you, you can't ask for, you know, the gender. Um, but then they called him up. He always kind of had a way of getting what he wanted. He was a very tough guy and uh, very, he got what he wanted. And, and, uh, uh, they said, well, we do have this one boy. And, and my parents went and saw me. And my mother said, I just turned my head and looked at my father. And I, I just gave him this huge smile. And he was like, I'll take him. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was a real pivotal, obviously, point in my life. Um, I grew up in, uh, well, you're in the New York area. Yes, I grew yeah. up in Fairfield County. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, private schools. Uh, you know, we had a summer home on the Cape that sat on 15 miles of beach. You know, very nice upbringing. Uh, very kind of, uh, you know just just what it was uh you know greek and latin tutors 
um, you know, Sunday dinners with your coat on, uh, you, you know, you spoke when you were spoken to very old school. Um, and, uh, when I found a tennis racket, I told my father, you know, that I wanted to be a tennis pro and he, he just, uh, he just, uh, he, I, I, I don't want to tell you what he told me basically that I was an, an idiot for even contemplating the thought process. Um, but, but that didn't deter me. And, um, and I just started playing and training and training and training and training and, uh, you know, ended up, uh, playing division one college and set a record at my school, turned pro and, uh, after college and, and started traveling the world playing tennis. And, uh, I was, I was the practice partner of Ivan Lundell, the probably, I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth best player of all time, um, dominated during my era, during the nineties and eighties, um, eighties, uh, into the early nineties. And, um, you know, I, I knew then that I, I, I pretty much made it. I, you know, 13 years of hard work, starting out late playing catch up and, uh, you know, just always believing that, that, that if I worked hard enough that, um, and I had the talent that I, I could, you know, get my game to a point where, you know, the best player in the world wanted to play with the me. Age and you that's what I did for about nine months. The age you started at, was that like above average for the, you know, for a tennis 13, player? No, 13 was ridiculously late. Um, it was, you know, when I first started playing, my pro said, you know, you can do it. And he actually drove to my father's house and said, your son is so talented. Um, you know, he could play pro one day. And my father, you know, was very polite to him. But when he left, it, it was an explosion. He was Irish. He was a Marine, uh, World War II uh, Marine captain and Korean conflict. So he, you know, he was uh, kind of like Clint Eastwood and um, Gran Torino type of guy. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Very, maybe. very much like him. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and spoke, could could talk to you the same way. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he just wasn't dealing with it. You know, he, he knew I was intelligent. He wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor, um, focus on my studies. Um, you know, anybody that followed a, a life of a tennis pro and, you know, as he said, nobody's going to respect a man that makes a living in shorts. Um, and, uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm still, I'm okay. I wasn't sure my phone beat. Um, anyway, um, yeah, and and that 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 was always a struggle for me. Always, always starting, um, you know, that journey. Um, it was just always a fight. Um, but I, I I got there, and um, you know, in '86 um, after Wimbledon, there was the Newport Tennis Hall of Fame tournament. It's the only tournament on grass in the United States. Um, I went there to uh, to play in it. Does that and, still stand um, today as as a, as a, the only tournament on, on grass in the United States? It's the only pro tournament on grass in the U.S. Wow. Okay. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's right before the hard court season where, you know, they have all the hard court tournaments that lead up to the U.S. Open. Right. And um, so, yeah, I, I went in there and I went to University of Rhode Island. So I had friends there. And when I went there, there was a buddy of mine that was managing a mansion on um, right off Bellevue Avenue. And um, the just a, a beautiful place. Um, you know, next level stuff. Um, and, um, you know, he said, you got to come over to the mansion. He knew that I grew up in a, in a nice area. Um, but he was like, you know, this is, this is, a you know, six servants inside running around four or five landscapers full time, taking care of the grounds, just a, you know, next level type of money. And, um, and the guy had the King and Queen of Spain in his house. He, he was in all the socialite papers having parties. Uh, this was during America's cup in the heyday in Newport. 
Um, so a lot of socialite stuff and, you know, and, and I went over to the mansion and I met Steve and, and, uh, and when, when I met him, you know, Richard popped out of nowhere and, and, um, you know, Richard, Richard, uh, was a little guy, you know, he's probably about, I don't know, five, seven, five, eight, you know, small, small in stature, small in build, uh, very kind of royal in his, in his, uh, in his demeanor, the way he spoke, the way he dressed, he, he acted like he royalty sounded like it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, and it was obvious that he was gay and, uh, he, he, I, you know, he, he immediately dismissed Steve and, and, and wanted to talk to me and, 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 uh, you know, uh, I'm not saying that that made me uncomfortable at the time, but, but I was, I was, you know, I was, it was just kind of weird that he dismissed Steve and, and, uh, you know, but, you know, I mean, honestly, I was a, a good looking guy and I was in great shape and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people would kind of pay attention to you, you know, it's right. just the way it was. And, um, and anyway, that was it. And, and, uh, saw the mansion a little bit left, went back to where I was staying and a, a couple nights later, it, w- it was a weird scenario. Steve wanted to go out, and my girlfriend at the time, who we had been out, we had been together for like five years. Um, they knew each other from college, so they decided to go out, and they wanted me to go out drinking with them. And I said, "No, nah, you know, we'll we'll go out and have fun when the tournament's done. You know, once I'm out of the tournament, then then I'll let my hair down. Right? Um, you know, I've been training too much. I've been training too hard to to blow it now. Uh, <laughs> and um, and they went out, and they actually barred the the groundskeeper's car because steve's car was in the shop and they were coming down the hill somehow they flipped the car oh shoot um and luckily no one was hurt they walked away um and you know about a night after that i get a phone call and it was it was from richard and uh you know it was like i was really impressed i've done some homework you know you you, you got you know a really big game and you know you could be on the verge of you know you're playing with lendl so i mean if you 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 know put some pieces together you could really kind of make some noise and of course if you get to that level then you can make some really good money um and so he was thinking about sponsoring me which which was not unheard of people would put 50 50 grand behind you help you with traveling this and that they would get a percentage you know whatever deal you you made at the time um and he he was interested in sponsoring me and he asked me if i wanted to come over to the mansion and talk to him and i thought yeah like absolutely so uh so I got in my car and I headed over there. And when I got there, there was very different from when I went there the first time. There were, there was, it was dusk. It was just getting, turning dusk, but there was no one there. There were no one around. I mean, it was, it was a ghost town, um, had a very eerie feel to it. Um, and I, I got out of my car and I just had this feeling like, you know, you need to get out of here. Like you need to go, and and um, I shook it off. You know, it's just one of those fleeting thoughts that you get, and you're like, "Where did that come from? Like, what?" Uh, right, a, and, gu- a and gut I, feeling. I, I just dismissed it, and and um, and he came out, and and the first thing I asked him, I said, "Where is everybody?" And Fourth uh, of July weekend was coming up, and he said, uh, "You know, I let everyone off for the for the holiday." And I was like, whoa, you know, what a nice guy. You know, what a nice guy. Right. And he invited me in and 
and we started talking and um you know what what really caught me off off guard was we were sitting there and, and he asked me if i wanted a beer and i said yeah i'll have a beer you know i, I knew it wasn't going to be a beer fest and, uh just to be social and, and it was an intimidating situation you know and uh and and out of nowhere he started cutting up a line of cocaine and you know this was the 80s it wasn't like you know cocaine was all over the place in the 80s and probably still is today i don't know i haven't seen it in 20 years plus but um you know and, and he cut up a line and he was like you know and he, he, he did one and he said you want it you know i i did it and he said um and I, I was just intimidated by the situation. And I was like, uh, you know, all right, I'll do one. You know, I mean, it was something that I used to do, like, you know, on, on at, a, at a friend's wedding or at, at New Year's Eve or a birthday party, some something that was kind of a special occasion. And it might be around, it might not. But if it was there, it was there. It wasn't, right. it wasn't uncommon back in the day. Um, but it certainly wasn't a staple of my life or anything that I focused on or anything I cared about. Um, so I, I did it and, um, we were sitting there talking and, and he said, have you seen the upstairs? And I said, I've seen it. And, uh, you know, it's an old Tudor mansion, the Victorian, I just love that architecture. And, and of course the interior and the, the antiques and everything. It was just a beautiful, beautiful place. And, and, uh, you know, you just look around and go, wow, 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 wow. And, and we went upstairs and we walked into this library and, you know, this huge library, it had to you know, um, steps to take a book from a very high shelf that was, you know, on a rail system, just all, I don't know, mahogany or cherry, just gorgeous woodwork. And then off to the side, there was a double door that went into a, a bedroom. And I saw that and I was like, uh, uh, you know, it just kind of made me a little uncomfortable. But, right. you know, I looked at him, I was like, I could pick this guy up with one arm. I mean, I, I could do 1,500 sit-ups in an hour and 10 minutes. I, I could run all day in the sun. You know, this guy, you know, what's he going to do? You know, and I just, again, just dismissed it. And, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about the, some, some things in the library. And then all of a sudden he sat behind his desk and he said, uh, uh, you know, and he started chopping up another line. And he brought out this marble platter where I was standing and, and he handed it to me. And, and I, I started doing the line and, um, and I, I didn't even, I didn't even get halfway through it. I mean, that's how powerful the drug was. It wasn't cocaine. I mean, it hit my it hit my nostril and it hit my my body. And within, I mean, I don't know how long it takes to do a line of cocaine, but it's like a millisecond. And that's how that's how fast this worked. And and I just stopped midway through, and I just just kind of all of a sudden things started getting a little wobbly, like just my vision. And, and I just looked at him and I said, what did you give me? You know, what the fuck did you give me? And I turned and, you know, I just went into, you know, it was fight or flight mode and there was no fighting because I knew I was in serious trouble and uh, I didn't have the ability. It was, it was run for your life. And, um, you know, I turned and, and, <laughs> you know, I started running and, uh, didn't make it too far. Yeah. Um, the library was on the top floor of the mansion. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, I made it maybe one or two steps and then I just dropped like a stone and, uh, you know, my arms and legs just were, 
were uncontrollable. They were flopping around. I was flopping around uh, like a fish out of water. And uh, I was just hallucinating. And, 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 and this wave came. It was just, it's hard to describe. Wave is the best way. It was like a wave crashing on you. But it was the drug trying to knock me out. And and the first wave hit, and and I was like, whoa! And I I, I got through it, and and uh, and I'm just looking around, and and I just knew I was, yeah, you know, you know, you you don't ever expect that in your life, you know, you don't ever think that you could be in that situation, right? And uh, and um. So you're 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 at this point you're drugged up, and oh, yeah. and you you your mind is still there knowing something's not right while your body is Absolutely. is experiencing Absolutely. a really my, my mind was sharp. Um, my eyes, you know, everything else was not, but I mean, I, I still had my thought process. Right. So this wasn't a drug that affected your thinking. It was just your no your your yeah. cognitive yeah. abilities. I mean, not that my thinking was stellar by any stretch, but I mean, I knew what was going on. Like right. I could see. I could visualize what was happening. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and he just, you know, came over me standing over me and, and he was just immediately was like, don't fight it. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Uh, that was in the first you know few seconds. Just don't fight it. Cause he could see I was still awake and he was freaking out. So he, he had every awake. intent of it working right away. Yeah. And, um, you know, and right away that was, that, that, that was putting a, putting a, a little, you know, a crowbar in his plants, you know, he didn't expect me to still be awake and he was just, you know, don't fight it, don't fight it. And, and immediately I was like, Oh, <laughs> dude, I'm, I'm fighting this with everything I've got. Like, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, and, and, and I wasn't for the fight of my life. And, and, um, you know, years later, I realized that all the training that I did, I always thought that it might be to win Wimbledon. It might be to, you know, to show my athletic abilities and the gifts that God gave me as a, as an athlete. And, um, quite honestly, I believe between having the father that I had and, and, uh, and all the training that I did, that, that it was for me to survive that evening that all of those pieces in the puzzle came together for me to survive. And, um, and in time he, he, he knew what the drug was like, how it worked. He would disappear the first time he disappeared and he got this brown towel, which had the crest of the mansion on it. And, um, and he would, he came in the, the first time and it was, it was, he, it was damp, you know, he'd run it under warm water. And, and it was damp and, and he, he, he covered my head with it. And the minute he covered my head with it, 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 it almost knocked me out. It was just a brutal wave. And, and I somehow, I just somehow survived, you know, the wave. And, um, and I was just thinking, you know, you can't, you can't pass out. You just, you just, you know, and if anybody can fight this, you can, Steve, you can do it. And I just was very positive in my self-talk I, I wasn't in a panic mode even though I was completely panicked I was very calm in my mind talking to myself like you can do this you know you've trained you if anybody can do this you can do it like I don't know anybody in my life that could probably get through this but you can um and I just 
that's what I did. And, and, um, and then, and then the knife came out and, um, and he was a rapist and, but what he really wanted to bring into play was the knife. And, um, and that's really all my mind was focused on was not getting cut. Um, not knowing if that I would live through it or if I would be scarred for life. Um, you know, those, those, those thoughts that, that you get in your mind, um, you know, they're not something that you want to think about. And, but what was brutally the worst of all was looking into his eyes. Um, you know, and, and since that day, my life and eventually became extremely violent at times. Um, and violent men don't scare me. Um, I've been incarcerated in horrible situations facing extreme violence. I've been on the streets facing extreme violence. And quite honestly, that, that didn't scare me. Um, but this guy scared me beyond belief. Looking in his eyes, they were soulless. They were dark. Um, True evil. If there is a demon that can possess someone's body and they can show it to your face and you can see it with your own eyes, I saw it. And I saw it for hours. And it will, it is something that you can't shake. It's something that you will never forget. And it's just, um, it's just something that, uh, that's just completely horrifying. So and, um, take us, take us to the part where you start trying to make a comeback. He, he tried the towel on you. He, he brought out the blade. And at this point he yeah, brings and, out the blade and where were you at that and point? I'm, I'm, I, I, I slowly started from the very beginning as the night went on. It, it, it was, I knew where the door was to the kitchen to get out. So in my mind, that was my goal was to get out, to get out of the house. Right. Even though that I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand, I couldn't do anything. That was just, that was my goal. Um, and slow, and, and, and of course, once I got past the initial major part of the blow of the drug, um, I, w- I, I slowly but surely started getting some type of control over my body. Not much, but I had some. Like when he put the towel over my head, my arm would be flopping and I'd be looking at my hand and it'd be flopping to my right. But then eventually I could kind of slowly bring it toward me and then eventually make a feeble effort and pinch my fingers and pull it off my head. Um, that could take 20, 30 seconds, but, but I was able to accomplish the physical task, um, slowly, but surely just trying to crawl, um, which is all I could do, um, you know, inches at a time. Um, and I slowly made my way out of the library, down the hallway, um, down the stairwell. So he watched uh, you, you know, crawl. I, he was just watching. Oh yeah. And watching he would you. disappear. He would disappear. He was freaking out. He was totally freaking out because I was still conscious. Running around with a knife, telling, putting the towel on me, telling me to not fight it, telling me, you know, um, he, and he would lose it and he would go in and out of my guesses, he was 
probably doing a bunch of blow because he would disappear and he was just crazed. Um, he was just absolutely crazed, losing it, angry, just, just horrible. Yeah. And, and I just focused on the task at hand, which was not passing out and then slowly trying to get to the, to the door and crawling down the stairwell. It, it took me probably three hours to get down that stairwell. Um, but I didn't stop. And, and then I slowly inched my way into the kitchen and, and the kitchen is really where I started to, to make some headway physically. You know, I was probably four or five hours into the ordeal. Um, and I got to the kitchen and, and there was a, you know, kitchen chair. And I, I slowly started trying to pull myself up onto the chair, um, at which I wasn't successful. I couldn't do it. Um, but I didn't stop and I would, try to pull myself up, I would fall, try to pull myself up, I would fall. And, you know, who knows how long that went on for. Um, but eventually in time, I was able to get myself seated on that chair. And in, in my first film, there's a apocalyptic life that looks into the serial mind of a predator, evil. Um, you know, there's some B-roll, there's some quick flashes of visuals that nobody understands when they'll see the film. They might go, oh, it's kind of artistic, but... Um, and there's some pictures of some hands um, banging on a, t you know, tapping a table, two hands at the same time, just tapping, 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 tapping. And, and that's what I did. Um, for some reason, when I when I got on the chair and I started taking my two hands and started tapping the table, um, for some reason, that physical activity kind of resonated through my body and connected my body and mind in a way where I knew I was doing something right. Like it made me feel a little better, it made me feel a little stronger. It made me feel a little more conscious of what was going on, not so lost. Right. Um, and so I just sat there and I just literally just sat there and was just tapping away. And he would come up behind me and put the towel on my head and just disappear and freaking out. And um yeah, and that, that went on for, for quite some time until I slowly but surely, you know, thought, you know what, I, I can, I can, I might be able to stand. And I worked my way on the ground over to a wall and then I slowly kind of used myself, propped myself up and, and, um, and I got myself on it, on, on, the, on the two, you know, standing on my two feet and uh, kind of using the wall as, as a, as a brace, um, and then, uh, and, and I got to the, the kitchen door and, and it was locked and I couldn't get out. And so then I just went to the, went, went, went for the front door and I don't know how long it took me, but I finally made it. And then, you know, he had had it locked in the inside and he was like, if you want to get out, come this way, come this way. And, and of course I'm so stupid. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go that way. Maybe they'll let me out there. Like, you know, that type of, you know, drug affected mind thought. But, but right. at that point you're just looking for, looking for you know, really any type of hope that you can hold on to. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into what happened throughout the evening. It was, it was, it was horrible. Um, but I slowly started, you know, following him and I was working my way down this hallway. It was very dark. Um, and I, I was moving, I was standing, I was fairly solid on my feet. You know, I would fall down, but not so much. Like I, I could, I was getting to the point where I could move a little bit. Right. So the drug's starting to wear off a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And, and, um, and I, I, I came and I saw this room, you know, this door and he says, you know, you can get out through here. And, and I, 
I, I glimpsed there was a, you know, crack where I could see. And I looked in and it was nothing but an S&M dungeon. All stuff hanging, just all kinds of hardware. Nasty, nasty stuff. Yeah. Nasty stuff, yeah. And and the walls were all pleated and like pleated leather. Um, and I just, the minute, I, I mean, I caught a glimpse of it and I just turned and started slowly walking in the other direction. Um, and that was the thing. He was such a coward that, that he couldn't, he couldn't, you know, he, 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 he was unable to do what he wanted to do. And that's what was cut me and, 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 uh, and do whatever sort of shit he was doing when that would go on. But, but, you know, my, my ability to stay conscious just totally ruined his night. And I, I started working my way and, um, and, uh, you know, just not fun, but, but, you know, and bad things going on, but, but, you know, eventually the sun started coming up. So this was literally a dusk to dawn situation. And when the sun started coming up, you know, I would say it was like the sunlight, you know, took out the darkness. It, it, it shined a light on evil. Um, and I guess he had, uh, you know, his normal mansion day was happening. You know, people coming in, landscapers, people maybe, who knows what, you know, what, what, what he had going on that day. But, uh, you know, what, what his night book plan, it was over. Right. And, um, and he eventually, uh, he just literally went to the front door, opened up the door and said, you know, get the fuck out. And I was in such a state, I, I got in my car and I don't know how, but I drove back to where I was. Luckily, I didn't kill anybody. I was in a total panic but just to get away just to get free right and my girlfriend came over and then the guy that managed the mansion that, that worked there he came over and he saw me supposedly my friend said he went over there and punched the guy out i, I, he, I don't think he was that type but but he probably i'm sure he went over and said something then and then and then they, they 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 saw the state that i was in and and you know that was the first thing in the morning and um and about a, you know the whole day went through and then we're probably about 10 up 11 o'clock at night um, and my pulse was still 190 at rest and I was still hallucinating. Um, you know, still my, my vision wasn't right at all. Um, and they, they finally talked me into going to the hospital. I didn't want to go to the hospital. I didn't want any record of that. I didn't want anything to be known. Um, but they were afraid that I was going to die. Um, and they just kept on me until I said, okay, I'll go to the hospital. And I, I eventually went to the hospital, um, talked to the doctor and, um, he was like, well, you know, the effects of cocaine, you know, you go up for 20 minutes and you come down and, and he was, you know, taking my vials to and everything. And he said, all right, let's go do blood work. And they took my blood work. And, and then of course, at that point, then the police were notified. So that there was, there was, um, that, and I started dealing with a, a Sergeant Suggs that was in the Newport police started dealing with him. And they said they had been watching him. And, you know, he said, uh, you know, um, no one you knew you were there like if something happened he could have just buried you somewhere just gotten rid of you no one knew that you were over there and it was just kind of a scary situation i was just trying to wrap my head around what happened and um um make a long story short the westerly hospital in rhode island they couldn't figure out what a, what was in my blood they sent it to a lab in providence they couldn't figure it out they sent it to a lab in boston 
and then eventually we found out what it was and the name of the drug was so long I, I forgot it years ago but i mean it was a super long name but it was a drug that was used um in state mental hospitals um that was so they used it on schizophrenics and it was such a violent drug that uh, the fda eventually banned it from using it on human beings and um they didn't know how he got his hands on it so they used to um, use this drug on schizo schizophrenic people and it's banned and, it, it on, and yeah, it's banned and now. It was, it was such a severe drug that, uh, you know, it, it, they ended up banning it. You, know, you look at like in the mental hospitals, they'll give people Haldol and Haldol will just lock someone up. You know, they might be conscious, but they're just locked up. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, whatever it is, is unbelievably yeah, powerful, powerful stuff. And yeah, it was so bad. They, 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 the FDA banned it. Um, and then somehow, um, Three weeks after that, I got a police. I got a call from the police. I went. I went to my house on the Cape just to just to get some R and R, get away from everything. I went with my girlfriend, and I really didn't let her know what the night was like. I just she just got the general drift, and that was it. Like my mouth was pretty much, you know, I just couldn't get into things. And right. And um and uh and then I got a, a phone call when I was with her out at the Cape. The, the police had my my phone number. They told me that they found a young man that was dumped in an alleyway in Newport. He was completely naked, um, cut cut up bad, multiple lacerations all over his body. He ended up in the ICU. Twenty four year old, and um, he was out there to wait tables or something to have a good summer. And, um, and I just, I'll never forget it. Sergeant, you know, he just said, you know, he wasn't as strong as you were. And, uh, and, you know, I, I think I had a bad, you know, I can only imagine what that young man went through, but, um, eventually, you know, this was a year after the Klaus Van Bulow. And I mean, Klaus Van Bulow allegedly stuck his wife with an insulin needle to kill her for the money. You know, these guys were neighbors and, uh, you know, and I'm like, well, what would, what would, what would they say if they knew this shit was going on? Um, and yeah, Newport didn't want any part of it, obviously. And on uh, um, the kid's parents, when he was healthy enough, when he left ICU, they took him to Colorado. And then all of a sudden, the police said they lost my blood work. And um, oh, well, we got no case. Have a nice life. Do you feel? the police really lost your blood work or did they try to kind of hide it given the area? And it was, it was either, you know, it's one of those things you don't know. It was either lost. Um, you know, this would have had massive ramifications on, on the Newport social life. I mean, they just dealt with Klaus Van Bulow. Um, and this guy had the King and Queen of Spain in his house. He was like the big socialite for, for high society. So, you know, that wouldn't look too good. Um, but, but who knows, maybe he ended up, uh, you know, paying someone off to get rid of it. Um, who knows? Um, you right. Know, and that police, that, that, that you know, police, well, maybe one day, uh, you know, I'll get enough money, um, you know, through this whole stuff. Maybe one day I'll, I'll be able to, uh, have someone really dig into it. But, right. you know, I, I, I don't know it, you know, and it, it doesn't matter what, 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 I'll tell you what, what, here's the big twist of the story was that I ended up, um, and it actually starts off. I wrote a, my, my screenplay. I've done three short films in this regard, but, but my screenplay, which I'm hoping to get to, you know, funding, 
um, being here in the uh, in the movie business, I mean, I've got my camera guys from Marvel, my lighting's from Suicide Squad, Cobra Kai. I've got amazing people that I've met, best in the profession that that were in this film business that that are, are are hoping that one day that I have the funds to shoot the film that I want to film because they want to be a part of it and they're willing to work right. at an extremely low rate to to help this this get out. Um, um, but the, the, you know, the opening scene of my film is me, you know, when I, you know, retired from playing professionally and, and I was just on that downward spiral you know, I was just trying to hold on to what sanity I had and, and trying to keep it from everybody and trying to stuff it in a box so nobody would know, you know, trying to be like, yeah, this cool tennis pro and still play and still compete. But yet this, you know, just, just in, in the inner workings of my mind and soul were just disintegrating and I didn't know how to stop it. Um, and I was trying to, you know, put on this outer, you know, like, like facade, like I'm okay. And then I was so far from it and, and it was slipping away and I didn't know how to stop it. And I was the, the tennis pro at the Marriott beach resort, which was the finest resort in the whole Mar- Marriott line. And, and, uh, and at the tennis facility there, they had pro tournaments there and, you know, I was playing with, you know, girls that were top 10 in the world and just, you know, just career wise, it looked like I was going great. But inside, I was just, you know, my girlfriend had broken up with me because she, I used to go over to the mansion when we were in Newport, and I'd go over there, and, and I'd get, we'd go out drinking and dancing, and instead of going home, I'd go to the mansion and just start shaking the gates and getting on the intercom, telling them I was going to kill them, you know, um, and she'd be like, the police are going to come, and I was like, he's not going to call the police, you know, and he'd, right. he'd be cowering behind the intercom, and I was just losing it, um, and I didn't know how to just deal and um, I was down in the Marriott, and a friend of mine sent me a, sent me a, an article, and it was from the um, it was from the, the Providence Journal. And uh, Richard had gotten um, he was on the, the steps of the courthouse, and he he'd been sentenced to prison. And then then uh, and then he sent me this other article, the UPI article, um, that basically stated that um, you know that mansion he never owned it. Wow. Um, he was a he was a con man. He it was owned by a ninety year old woman that was in the convalescent home, nursing home in, in Virginia. And somehow he must have said, Oh, I'll, I'll take care of it for you and, and uh he went in and he fooled all of high society. Um had the king and queen of Spain in his house. Um So he conned this old lady. He, got, he and- got he got his he got his um his claws into the vice president of Newport Bank and Trust. Wow. That was one of the oldest banking institutions in the United States. That's there? Yeah, no, I'm you here. Know? So he, he yeah, was and, able to and, con. And he, 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 well, listen to this. He somehow, which I'd like to know how, but in the article, the banker said, I was a good banker and I was brought into the horror of horrors or the nightmare of nightmares. And somehow Page blackmailed him to write $1.6 million in fraudulent loans so that Page could keep up this lifestyle. So he conned two people. How did he do that? So he conned the old the older lady who actually owned the mansion and then to live there. To live there and then owned the, and then ended up conning a bank person to, to get the one point six million of fraudulent loans so that he could act keep, like he was royalty. That's crazy. Yep. So there were so as as far as the bank front, he might have had somebody on the inside that might have known him or he just think that he acted no, as a con he man. Got he got the vice him. president the vice president of the bank went to prison for it. He wrote, he himself authorized 1.6 million fraudulent loans to this guy. 
So my question is, what did Page have on him? And he said in the article that he was originally um, enamored and and just amazed by that lifestyle, you know, that 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 Newport Bellevue Avenue lifestyle, the mansions. And my guess is he had to have something on him sexually. Yeah. He had to have him. He he had something to blackmail him to get the guy to write 1.6 million, because not only in the UPI article, he also states that he was so afraid of Richard and scared of him that he ended up cleaning out his wife's 401k to give Richard the money. Wow. So, yeah, you, you talk about a story. That's insane. Absolutely crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. That is crazy. And yeah. um, after all these events, you know, you mentioned that you go over to the mansion and you were really, you know, you were upset. Obviously, you were, you were dealing. You were dealing with these demons now that you have inside of you from the traumatic experience that you went through. Um, what did this play going forward in your life? It destroyed it. How, how so? It, 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 it was a, a slow process. You know, it didn't, didn't happen in one weekend. Um, because I was trying so hard to hold my life together. And, and, you know, uh, I was able to somewhat do that, but, you know, it's like a slippery slope. No, no matter. It's like it's like quicksand. You know, you're going down, and it might not be a you know overnight thing, but you're going slowly. But you're going down, and no matter what you do to stop it, you you, you can't. Um, and um, when I was in when I was teaching at the Marriott, um, you know, it was the um, '80s. Cocaine was everywhere, right? Um, and then it became more prevalent. And why I, I started doing it was because my nightmares, I had such a hard time sleeping. Like I would wake up just covered in sweat, screaming. Um, the night terrors were so bad that um, <clears throat> I was afraid to go to sleep. You know, I was I could be okay during the day. I might have panic attacks where I'd have to pull the car over. Right. I'd have to go into a bathroom somewhere and I'd have a panic attack and I'd just deal with it. But I was alone. I was, and I'd shake it off, and then, you know, brush yourself off and go out. Hey, my name's Steve. What do you, you know? You wanted lesson today? You know, yeah, we're at the Marriott. Isn't it beautiful here? Oh, I got to play a tournament. I'm, you know, I'm going out and playing in front of hundreds of people, and and people are trying to buy me drinks because oh, you, oh, I love the way you play or whatever. But inside, I was dying slowly. Yeah. And, um, and and the the cocaine was just like. I, man, I, I don't have to fall asleep. Like I can stay up and, and I don't have to fall asleep and deal with these dreams. So, and I was like, well, if I can just like nap here and there and just do, you know, I, I think maybe I found, I found a good way to get through this. So a combination um, of the traumatic experience and the drugs that he possibly gave you, it, it elevated you to, to deal with this traumatic experience with drugs and. Yeah. What, well, I mean, you know, people, you know, alcoholics and addicts, you know, you know, what, what, you know, most end up using using something because there's some sort of inner hole that they're trying to fix. Right. Um, and and they're and 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 you you know and at first like you know hey you know or you go out and you, you know hey I'm going to go out and have eight beers and forget about everything. You know maybe that works at first, but slowly but surely it, it, it takes its toll. Um, and it was the same thing with the cocaine. And then you know and then all of a sudden, um, you know I got popped. I got a possession charge. You know, I got, I had like 
like like the the cops they 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 knew I was wild, and and they ended up finding um you know it was an illegal search but it doesn't matter they ended up dropping the charges but I ended up losing my job at the Marriott. No. So then, so then I was like, oh God, you know, and I was like, I didn't, you know, quite honestly, I could have cared less about losing my job. Like I, I was good at what I did. My resume was killer. I was like, I can work anywhere. I could go anywhere in the world, and get a good job. Right. Um, and, and I did. And I ended up applying for this company called Washington Tennis Services. There were headhunters, 1400 teaching jobs at country clubs around the country. And they gave me their number one job. It was in Chicago at a very exclusive Jewish country club. Um, you know, it was great money. I think it was like 40 grand for two and a half months work. Wow. And, um, and this was in, you know, 1990. Um, and, uh, you know, I went there and, and I was like, Steve, you know, okay, you're out of Florida. No, no coke. Just, you know, just train, practice, you know, go to the gym, do, you know, just do what you know to do. Um, and, and I did that. And I did that like through, you know, through the beginning of the summer and then August hit and, uh, and and I, I I was coming home and I'd been working all day and I stopped into a bar and, and I met this guy and, and then, uh, you know, he's a black guy and he didn't have any money. I was buying him some drinks and uh, and then he was like, hey, you want to get some Coke? And I was like, oh, God, here we go. Yeah, yeah, let's go get some. And he took me to a, a place where he lived, which was a, a, a project called um, Ford Heights. It was uh, its name was uh, Vietnam. Um, and Vietnam was actually, if you look it up, it was the poorest project or one of the poorest projects in the country. Um, extremely violent. Um, and so much so that in 1993, the city shut the whole thing down. Like they moved everybody out. (laughs) Like they just closed it down. That's how violent it was. And I went in there to buy some and, and, um, you know, and my self-destructive behavior couldn't have been any higher. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up getting, uh, and then, and then once I got that, that night, I, I just, I kept going back on a, on after work. Let me go get a half gram. Let me go get a half gram. Let me go get a half gram. I'll be up all night and whatever. Go to work the next day, but, but I'm not having nightmares. And, but of course, you know, you, uh, you know, bad things happen. You know, you, you put yourself in that type of situation and, and, um, I ended up, uh, I was leaving, got a, got arrested, thrown in Cook County for possession, um, eventually got out. And of course, what do I do? I, I knew I had lost my job. So I was like, you know, screw it. I'll just go back in the projects. I, I just need to get high. I just don't want to feel anything. I don't want to think about anything. And I went in there and, um, and, uh, there were some guys that, that said I owed them some money, which was, which was a bunch of BS, but, uh, um, um, and, and, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and, and the five of them almost beat me to death. Um, they um, they they almost beat me to death, but they didn't. Um, and it was so bad that, that during the beating, the, uh, two more guys pulled up in a an old Caprice Classic, and uh, I could hear this noise, and I'm listening, and, and there's a dog in the back of the trunk, and I'm like, what the? And they, they have a pit bull on, the, on a leash, and they bring it over to me and they're letting it get really close to my face and pulling it back and laughing because, you know, the dog wants every bit of me and they're holding it back from ripping into me. And, and uh, uh, my, my face was so swollen, 
you know, it's not like Hollywood. You just, you just so swollen and, and, you know, and I, so during the beating, I was just like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Again, I went into a very calm state of mind. Like, you know, you're okay. You're going to be okay. Right. This is not that bad. Um, just trying to actually, I, I just felt like I needed to calm myself down because I was afraid of having a heart attack. I just thought that the stress of the moment could just kill me or, or between the beating and the stress. Like I knew I needed to keep my mind calm. And, uh, and that's what I did. And, and then, you know, they were laughing at the dog and eventually the dog was so strong that it, 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 it got a little too close and it ripped into my upper lip and lower lip and, and ripped my lips off. And, Oof. and, uh, yeah. And then, um, and then they, they were laughing and, and they were laughing at their work and, um, and, and they got, and then they were talking about torching my car and they said, no, we've done enough. And they got in their cars and drove away. And, and I actually got in my car and, uh, you know, it's, it's a long story, but I eventually ended up in the hospital and, um, and, uh, you know, when I walked in, I, I walked in the emergency room and it was like the parting of the Red Sea. And, and, um, and then I just collapsed and, uh, put me on a gurney and they were like, you know, code, whatever. And this nurse was looking at me and she was like, you know, you, you look like you're, you could be a decent looking guy. Like, she's like, what happened to your face? And I said, well, I got beat up and bitten by a dog. And she was like, when? And I said, oh, about eight hours ago, you know, because I just wanted to get, I just needed to, you know, when it was done, I, I was, didn't want to go to the hospital. Like I was just in such denial. Right. I just was, no, I'm going to get high. Like my face hurts. So I'll just do some coke. And yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it'll make a great scene in a film. I'll tell you that much. It'll be horrifying. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I walked in the hospital and I ended up in a, in a coma for a few days and then I came out and they, and they, I just, for a glimpse, they were like, we need to put you on a respirator and I went out and then later I came to and there was my father, you know, and I'm like, oh God, here we go. And he's, you know, he's like, Boom, I knew you'd pull through and, you know, I knew you were strong enough to pull through and, and then the cops came in and they were talking about what happened and. And I was like, yeah, I know, I know that whole project. I know how those guys work. I know who did this. Like, like I know, I know who these guys are. I spent enough money in there, and and they're like, well, you know, you want payback? And I said, you better believe I do. And they said, will you go undercover? And I said, yeah. So the minute I got released from the hospital, I went straight to the police station, and I went undercover with about ten undercover cops, and I did three drug buys in one day, um, and uh, you know, unarmed, and just thinking they're just going to blow me away. And then I walk in, they're going to know, and they're just going to shoot me. So that was a hairy moment in my life, that's for sure. Wow. But, uh, but I ended up, uh, one of them, the, the, one of the main guys I couldn't get, but uh, three of them I ended up getting, and uh, they did a minimum of seven years um, for, for what happened. Um, but then again, it was still a, a spiral a spiral staircase going down, like like that wasn't enough, and you know, I, I got my stuff together. I went down to Florida. I got another teaching job and I'm trying to do good. And, but, but I'm still just, everything is just, just more and more, just more and more trauma, just more and more, just, just not being able to deal with it. And, um, just trying to hold on. And, and I, I, I had no tools to hold on. I, I, I just didn't know what to do. Like, like, you know, I just basically felt like I was, I was going to die or I wanted to die. Really. I was just, you know, like the whole Chicago thing didn't, didn't, I had no fear over that. Or like I was like, oh, it's okay. Just put me out of my misery. Right. Well, go you know, experiencing I'm, I'm okay. experiencing what you went through, you know, and, and yeah. going in a downward spiral. That's what would happen. We're going to take yeah. a momentary pause, Steve, and then we're going to continue right. R- right after this. 
And we're back from our break. We had to uh, just take a momentary pause, take a bathroom break. Steve, you were um, telling us about your downward spiral um, after the events of the mansion. And um, I wanted to let you continue and then uh, tell us on how you bounced back. Because the, the bounce back story is always greater than the traumatic story. We want to we know how you turned everything around. So we want to let you continue. Yeah, um... Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, it's, 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 you know, it, you could tell a hundred stories, but they're all the same. Um, it's just, uh, just going in that direction. Um, and it just depends, you know, how, how low is it going to go? Um, and for me, you know, I, I, um, ended up doing, being caught up in the judicial system. Um, you know, I will always, I don't, I don't think I ever got caught with more than probably $10 worth of cocaine in my life, but I ended up with about six felonies. Um, and because it was one after another in violations and this and that, um, you know, I, I ended up looking at, uh, I scored out to seven years in prison, Florida state prison minimum. And, um, I, um, I, I had been sitting in County, um, in maximum because of the number of felonies I had, they, they would put me in maximum. So, I never always understood that, but, but I would do my time in max and, you know, these people are looking at, uh, you know, 20 years to life. Um, you know, the real bad boys. Um, and you know, especially when they're feeling the stress of not being sentenced yet and, and they're in those situations, it's, it's, uh, not a fun place to be. Um, it's a, it's a different world. You have to know how to protect yourself and how to, how to survive that as well. And, um, I had been in max for about three months. Um, and I eventually got in front of a, a judge for my, for my court date. And, um, you know, I pled no contest and, um, my public defender had, um, had, had did a thing called what they call downward departure, which meant the sentence could be a downward departure from what, what you scored out to. Um, and in Florida that, that could be mean treatment. So they did a interview you know, um, who's your mother? Who's your father? When did you first have your first drink? You know, what did you do? Where'd you go to school? What's your education? And I think by the time they were done with my interview, when the judge read it, he about had a heart attack. And I uh, just went in front of him. He said, you know, Mr. Phillips, you're, you're looking at seven years. You're pleading no contest. So, you know, you're seven years. I said, yes, sir. He says, uh, you don't want no. I said, no. I said, I'm guilty. And he said, let me ask you a couple of questions. He's like, you know, you're you were Leno's practice party. You were co Ivy League coach at Brown University. You were at the Marriott. You were at Santa Barbara Resort and Spa. You blah, 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 blah. Your father was this and your family and your education. I said, yes. And he, he was like, well, what happened to you? And, and I just said, nothing happened to me. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Mr. Phillips, I, I think something happened to you. And, um, and we're going to find out what that is. And I'm going to send you to a, a drug treatment center for a year. And if you violate her, I see you again. I'll, I promise I'll give you 10 years in prison. And, um, and he said, and you're not getting out today. He says, because you're not going to get to that, that treatment center until, uh, until the bed's open. Well, the bed opened nine months later. So I got to spend another nine months in maximum, which was always a real treat. Mm. And then, um, then I finally made it over to, um, to the treatment center and the thing was is that i i got into a fight defending myself so when i showed up at the treatment center they threw me in the hole when i was done and my hand was shattered and it was about as big as a football and um they they i spent three days in a in a van traveling across florida to get to fort lauderdale just because they could soak you for the 
travel fees to the state, who knows, but whatever, I finally get there and, and now they saw my hand and they, they, you know, and I just said, look, I don't want you to think I'm a, I'm a, I'm some scary guy that's trying to come in here and do it. I said, I just defended myself and, you know, that's just the way it is. And right. Not, not the way you want to start off, you know, treatment, the treatment center. Right. Yeah. Especially if you make one mistake, you're going to go, go away for 10. Uh, but, uh, you know, I ended up, uh, got assigned a one-on-one counselor. His name was Nick and uh, Nick saved my life. You know, there's really the, the beginning of, um, of, of the journey upward. Um, you know, Nick, Nick kept trying to, trying to get me to talk to him and I wouldn't talk to him. You know, he's like, Steven, you, you know, you're the best bad guy I got here. He goes, you know, with your education and your background, he goes, I tell you to be here at eight, you're here at eight. You're, you know, you're well, done. You, you know, you, you do everything the way you're supposed to do. You're perfect. And he said, but you're not telling me anything. Like you'll talk about shit, but you're not telling me anything. Um, and, um, and, and, and by chance, my, my sister ended up calling him. My birthday was coming up and I had told my family to forget about me. I said, don't, don't, just forget about me. Just, just remember who I was. I'm, I'm not coming back. I can't come back. Um, I didn't want to deal with them or anyone else because I was so tired of hurting people thinking that, that I would, I would get my life back together and that I knew it was an impossibility. So I just basically said, just think, think of me as being dead and then, and either let me die in prison or on the streets or wherever, because I can't come back. Um, and that, that guilt and shame, was just such a brutal weight to carry because it, it, I didn't really care about myself. Like I was okay with dying. Um, I, especially if it meant that I wasn't going to hurt my loved ones anymore, thinking that, that I was going to be Steven again, because that was an impossibility. Um, but, but, uh, my sister ended up calling Nick and, and, uh, you know, I was turning 35 and, uh, she said, is he playing any tennis? And, and I had never even told him I played tennis. Um, and he was from an avid tennis family. And, um, and he was like, Steve plays tennis. And she's like, yeah. Hmm. Um, and then she filled him in on my background and I just went in for another day, typical one-on-one session. He looked at me and he was like, I talked to your sister and, and I started squirming in my seat and thinking, oh man, I don't want to open up this door. Like, let's shut that, that door. Like, I don't want to go here. And, uh, and he said, she bought you a birthday present, you know, your birthday's in a few days. And I said, oh. And he takes out a tennis racket and he, and he put it on his desk, a brand new Wilson pro staff. That's what I played with. And, um, and I just looked at it and, uh, I, I just lost it. Like, I just, I just couldn't hold it back. You know, it was at that point, it had been like seven years of just horror, just trying to figure out a way and not, not thinking there was one. And, and I just saw that racket and I just lost it. And he was like, Stephen, what happened to you? And I was like, nothing. And he was like, what happened to you? And I was like, nothing happened to me. And he was like, Stephen, you know? And I was like, you don't want to fucking know. You don't want to know. Nobody wants to know. You know, who wants to know this? Nobody does, you know? Right. And he was just like, what happened? And I was like, okay. You want to know? I'll tell you. And he was and the first him. person that you actually told the full story to at that point. Yeah, yeah. Except for the police when it first happened, and I didn't even give them half of what happened. I just, you know, just enough to go arrest them. Well, I mean, at that point when you spoke to the police, you were probably so messed up too, like you couldn't really. Cog- well, you know, I wasn't, wasn't going to get like... into the fact that he was a rapist and all that shit, right? You know? But yeah, he, you know, 
and they knew from the guy they found three weeks later. So, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I ended up um, talking with Nick and, um, and, uh, and, and that, that was the beginning of the journey. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, is that, um, you know, eventually I figured it out, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I have, um, I have two beautiful daughters. They're 17 and 19. Um, matter of fact, I'm making a film right now called Homeless. It's just a short film that I'm doing with my own camera and running around. And I had the kids out there and, and we're putting this together. But it, it's about a, it was about a point in my life because when, when I left treatment, you know, Nick, Nick, Nick and I got very close. As a matter of fact, he had me court ordered by the state of Florida, which I don't know if that's ever happened before, but they actually court ordered me to train. Basically, if I didn't go to the gym and I didn't start practicing in tennis, they could violate me and throw me to prison. Um, and and uh, and then they 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 forced me to go to the 35 Nationals that was in Florida. And you know, I hadn't played in years and competed in years. And I went to the Nationals, and I think in the quarterfinals, I beat the number four guy in the world. Wow. Um, and um, you know, so so. Uh, but when, when I left treatment, I, I was actually, you know, I went in thinking, oh, I can't wait to get out, you know, be, be free, you know, after doing almost a year in max and then a year there. And I was like, man, just, just, you know, I just want to get back to reality. Like, can I do this? But then there was that part of me that was so afraid that I knew that I, I can't do this. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I can't do this. I'm just, I just too, too screwed up. Like, there's too much damage. And, and when I left, he, you know, he told me, he's like, Steve, I went to 27 treatment programs before I got clean. I was like 27. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, and, and I've been cleaning you know, like 30 years. And here he is now helping you out. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was his calling. And, um, and he was like, just promise me if you get off the horse, I mean, if you fall, you know, if you pick up, you know, and that happens in recovery, like, you know, most of the time it does, you know, if you do pick up, you promise me that you'll get back up on the horse. And I said, I promise. And and I kept my I kept it together for a year and a half or so, um, and then I and I fell, and and when I fell, that's when I I completely gave up on life because I had failed once again, and um, and actually there were family members and relationships and work and tennis and people thought that I was back, and I wasn't, and I fell and and. And when I fell, I didn't even go back to my apartment. I left it because I had spent all my money on my relapse. And I just decided to stay on the streets. And I stayed there for like three months. And I was smoking crack, graduated to crack. And, um, and I, I, was, I was starting to realize that I was losing time. And I was starting my stopwatch. And 45 minutes would go by after it. And I called up Nick. And, and I wanted to know what was wrong with me physically. And then I said, you know, and I am okay. I'm alive. And he was like, you're borderline stroke victim. You're going to die. And I was like, that's okay. And I said, just know that I love you. Just know that I thank you for everything that you've done, but, but I can't do it. And I'm tired of hurting you and everyone else. So just let me be, you know, and I hung up the phone and, um, and, uh, and, and it was after that, that I decided to go kill myself. And I walked to a railroad track. That's where the homeless people walk in front of a train. And I walked in front and I went to go walk in front of a train and, um, and no train came and trains were always going by and there wasn't a train. Mm. And I just dropped to my knees and just started yelling at God, screaming at God, you know? And then when I was done screaming, I just said, help me, you know, just help me. 
And he did. And here I am today. I ended up figuring it out, went back to treatment, stayed away from the stuff, haven't touched it since. And, uh, and you know, and now I'm, I'm trying to create and tell a story that I like to think that'll be visually entertaining and gripping to people, but will also touch a lot of souls because, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether you're the high end country club that I'm, that I knew or, or you're, you're, uh, on the streets or, or you're in prison. You know, I, I know it all. Um, there's nothing I haven't seen or experienced. And, um, you know, we're just human beings trying to find our way. And, and I'm hoping that, uh, that my story can reach out and, and, and touch some people. And I know that some of my short films already have because people have called, you know, reached out to me and said, you know, I, I saw it and, and it just, it, it just gave me so much hope. Um, and, you know, and, and so that's, that's, that's been my mission, you know, for 20 years, I mean, Nick always told me, he said, Steve, you need to tell your story. And I said, I'll never tell my story. You know, I just wanted to put it in a box, hide it and just move on with my life. Um, but eventually, um, um, you know, well, well, you know, eventually push games to shove where I, I, I decided that I was, it was at a low point in my life emotionally. And, and I, I was trying to figure out why I was here. And, and, um, and I thought of Nick and I ended up, um, I had actually gotten a DUI. I was going through a divorce, got a DUI and they threw me in max on a misdemeanor because of my past here in Georgia. Wow. And here I am in max and then, you know, and I'm in my fifties now. And, uh, you know, the minute I got there, I'm, I'm going to fight with some guy with some Aryan nation. And then of course, the other Aryan nation guy wanted to fight and I'm, you know, and I'm in there duking it out with these young guys. And, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, you know, after two of them, they started to leave me alone. They're like, this old guy can take care of himself. But, you know, I, I was, I was like a caged animal again. Like, why am I here? I don't understand it after everything I've been through and everything I tried. Why am I here at this moment? And I started thinking of Nick and, and they gave me 45 days and, um, I was probably in max for 15 at the time. And, and I looked over and I saw, I thought, I thought of Nick and I saw a legal pad and I was like, time to tell my story and uh, i wrote 287 pages in the next 30 days um uh and in in the night uh in the maximum security cell with very dim lit with like a two-inch pencil and it just flew out of me um and then i ended up on a movie set and then i i realized that that i wasn't really meant to you know i mean i've written the book i've published it yet which i need to do um but i i um i i just switched gears i was like well i see this visually and and uh and, and that's when I, I started on this journey of making films and, and eventually trying to get to a point where where right now, um, you know, I got pretty much everything in place. I just need some funding to uh, to, to shoot the film. And, and uh, you know, my goal is like it's just the way I am. Like, like I, you know, I honestly being in the production, I see 50 million dollar movies and I'm like, you know, I honestly believe for 100 grand for a couple hundred grand. I, I believe it's possible to make an Academy Award winner. Well, there's been a lot of movies out there that that did did a lot of big things in filming with with small budgets and made made it pretty big. There's movies out there or shows that, that were, that were made and didn't, didn't even get the chance to be released in the United States. And then finally it happened and became big things like squid games on Netflix. And uh, there's some other movies out there that were, you know, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. It's possible. I think you're, I think what it needs is it needs, it needs someone that has the vision that you have and, and those visions need to align. And if you can do that, then, then it can be done. Absolutely. I think you have a, the story, did resonate with me when we spoke months ago and you, mm-hmm. know, you came on tonight and told it as elaborately and well done as you possibly can. And it's, it's very motivational because everyone has a story 
where they bounced back and your story mm-hmm. was not only traumatic and mentally traumatic, it was physically, it, it spanned for years. And, you know, you, you're here today on this podcast, talking to us, sharing your story. You, mm-hmm. you have two beautiful daughters. You're uh, back in the, the movie business. You're in, you're better shape than I am at 37. <laughs> I tell you that right I'll now. Tell you, what, you want to hear something funny is, is my old doubles partner could never figure out what happened to me. You know, we played together in our twenties when our prime. Right. And he, he just thought I just had a mental breakdown. And I ended up telling him what happened. And he was like, Why didn't you tell me? And I was like, I couldn't. You know, I couldn't tell you, you know. And I just wanted to, you know, deal with it on my own. I, I couldn't tell you. And um and uh and and he said, There's a, a national tournament, you know, in our age division in the fifty fives. He said, There's a national tournament here in Newport on the grass and uh you need to come and play it. And I said, I'm not going to Newport on the grass. I'm not playing there, you know, because that's where everything started. Right. And he said, no, I think it'd be good for you. And I said, no, that's like the worst thing for me. And uh, but but I kind of knew inside and, and I was like, well, I got two kids. I can't afford it. Like, I'm, you know, I, I just try to pay my bills. And I'm a working guy. And he said, no, he's a lawyer. He says, I'll pay for it. And I was like, oh, like, like you trump me. And we went and then uh, and then he was like, let's go to the Nationals. And then the United States uh, tennis, the USTA picked us to represent the U.S. in the 55 um, division in, at the World Championships because we finished fifth in the country. Um, and we went out of 128 teams from around the world. Uh, we went in unseated and uh, he and I took the bronze medal. We finished third. Wow. That so, is crazy. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. That, that was that was a really special week. You know, kind of all kind of come together. And you know, people are like, who are these guys? Like, yeah, underdogs, know? right? And yeah. then they come in and do yeah. your thing. And, and, and Greg's just like, they're not even going to know what to do with your power. <laughs> That's incredible, Stephen. Yeah. So my co-host has a couple of questions. We'll take the, uh, the remainder of our time so he can ask you some questions. Perfect. And then we'll end off from there. So this is actually, ironically, his name is Nick as well. And he, <laughs> he's gonna t- he's, he has some questions that he wrote down that he would like to... We didn't want to bother you while you were telling your story. So we'll just ask, yeah, yeah. We'll ask, this, we'll ask the questions now. So I'll, I'll let, hand it over to Nick. Oh, thank you, Billy. Um, and thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate uh, getting to hear the story. And for people who've been listening to the podcast, I usually talk a lot. But I was taking in a lot of what you had to say. So again, thank you. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. So one of the questions I'd ask, but you kind of answered it already when you were talking about Nick, the other Nick, um, is what kind of brought you through this tunnel and, and you know the work he's done with you. So I'm going to leave that question alone because you answered it already because um, you had mentioned earlier. Well, it, well, it, it just wasn't Nick. You know, it, to me, it's a God thing, you know, the way the way things work out. Um, you know, and eventually I think a lot of people when they have issues is, is – is, and, and they might be strong-willed people. They might be intelligent people. They might have good logical thinking. Um, but, but you know, when you get to the point where no matter what you're doing, you can't do it on your own, th- there needs to be kind of a little intervention that gives you some help, you know. And, and, and sometimes that could be a bunch of people around you. You know, for everyone, it's a little different. I'm not telling anybody what to believe. Um, but you need to believe in something other than yourself because generally we got ourselves there and life got ourselves there. So, you know, everyone needs help and they need to look outward for that help. Yeah, I definitely understand that. We talk about that, you know, um, kind of on and off when we're here as well about intelligent design and, you know, whether you believe or not, there's got to be something, some being, some some design. So I totally Absolutely. totally hear where you're coming from on that one. Yeah. Um, the next question I had written down as you were going was you mentioned a lot of adversity in your life. You know, you 
the, the gentle way to put it was your dad called you an idiot. Um, you had a broken back, you had a late start, you had this whole very complicated and very um, horrifying event happen to you. So have you always viewed, the question I guess is, have you always viewed adversity as a platform to excel? Or is this kind of something, you know, you developed after your work and kind of in retrospect um, to the events you've gone through versus, you know, I, I like to say adversity can propel you forward versus drag you down. So my question is, do you see it that way? Have you always seen it that way? Or is it kind of something that's been triggered, you know, after your treatment and all that? Well, no, I, I think ultimately, like from from the very beginning, whether whether it was, you know, falling 30 feet onto cement and telling telling me that I was um, never going to run again. Um, and uh, they said, well, you need to do some stomach exercises to strengthen your back. And, and all I did was sit ups until I was running like the wind um, or or, you know, I mean, my, my father was like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Great Santini, mm-hmm. you know, the military, the way he brought um, my right. father was like that, okay. um, uh, you know. Quick story, 17, first time I go out drinking, one of the first times, keg party in Connecticut, back roads. I'm walking home, and, and a senior came by, and he hit me head on with his car, hit me in my cast. My head went through the windshield. I flipped over the car. They were drunk. They drove through me. They got out. They got out. They, I was on the side of the road. They thought I was dead. They got in their car, and they left me there. Um, someone found me on the side of the road later, and they brought me home. When I got home, my father, mother and father were freaking out. My father's like, well, wash the blood off and go upstairs and go to bed. And that's what I did. And I, I woke up the next morning and we had acres in Connecticut and he went out and he bought a leaf blower for me to blow the estate off. And when I was done blowing the leaves, he said, all right, now I'll take you to the hospital. Um, and what my father and my father loved me more than anybody. And I probably loved my father more than anybody in my life, but he was brutally tough. But, but I think the point was, is that, you know, he, he, he knew what the world was like being in world war two and being in Korea and growing up in Boston and how violent things could be and how, how the world could be. And, you know, I was growing up in a golden cage and he didn't want me to act like I grew up in a golden cage. He wanted me to be tough. And no matter what, what came my way, um, I could survive. So I, I always had that. I think being adopted, I think I had that, that, that overwhelming sense that I want to prove to my father that I'm, I'm his son. And I want to prove to my father that I'm a man. Um, and I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't a loser, that I could do something, that I could accomplish something. So I think no matter what came my way, ultimately it was that drive that, that got me to, to get through it. You know, that, that I, okay, you know, everything sucks, but you can get through this. Like you, if you work hard enough, you know, no matter what pain you got to put up with, you know, you can get to the other side. Um, just don't quit, you know, just don't quit. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know. The thirst to prove oneself, the thirst to pull forward, not push forward, but to be pulled and pull others forward is very important. Um, you know, and then I appreciate that answer because that's really good. Uh, and then I had one more. Well, before we get to that question, let me just does, do the names Haloperidol or flu, <laughs> Flufenazine mean anything to you? Because you mentioned you couldn't really remember the name, and I looked up a couple. No, it, it wasn't that. Okay. All right. Okay. And then finally, so, you know, I want to talk to you specifically about your story. Yeah. Um, you, you know, mentioning, um, this kind of a hallucination, this kind of a hallucinogenic experience you go through after you do this line. Right. And, but that you were visually sharp. Now I'm not discounting your story because it's very real. It's very vivid. And I could visualize the whole thing as you're describing it. Yeah. But if you're hallucinating, you know, I, I always like to approach things and you could ask Billy, 
this is just how I am. I'll approach a lot of things with a scientific eye and a scientific mind, you know, kind of just sitting there. If you're hallucinating, I'm not saying it didn't happen, obviously, but all the things that you mentioned, there's one specific one that stood out while you were telling your story was about this um, brown, damp towel, right? Um, Again, not to discount your story, but how much, how much, or what what gives you the gravitas to know that everything you visually saw happened and some of it wasn't just kind of um, an elaborate trick of your own mind on this no, journey? That, 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 that's not even a possibility. What, what I mean by hallucinating is that it, it wasn't like hallucinating like if you were doing mushrooms or acid or anything like that. Okay. Um, it was, it was, you know, it, it was, it was such a fuzzy state. Like in other words, everything's fuzzy. Everything's kind of out of focus. Things are kind of moving. It wasn't like you're seeing elephants appear from the room. Kind of like when um, you're smoking weed, correct? But, but, but yeah, like, like, you know, you're high, but it's just, you're extremely high. Like just think of something like you're like, you're so high. You can't even believe how high you are. Um, you know, but the thing is, is that, you know, I, I mean, it's actually, I'm I'm not discounting your question because let's say he could have put that towel on my head and I actually could have gone out for a little bit. Okay. I mean, it's always possible that I blacked out. Like he could have put a towel on me and I'm fighting the wave. Who's to say that I didn't black out for maybe a minute or two and then come back to, Right. And then and then fight the towel again and fight him again. Right. Um, is that possible? Yeah. The, the the drug wasn't so much as a mental and visual effect as it was physically. Got it. What it was doing to my what it was doing, it rocked my world, but it was much more on the physical aspect of my body than it was on the mental aspect of my brain. Okay. I just knew that, oh, God, this is like, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. Um, is it possible that I could have conked out when I had a towel on? Yeah. Is it possible that, that there were spots there that I don't remember at all? Yeah. Is it possible that I didn't see a knife? Absolutely not, especially three weeks later when the kid gets cut. Right. Um, is it possible that all that stuff that, no, that, that was, that was, you know, that was as real as could be. Okay. Yeah. Nick is the, um, he's the person on the podcast that's, uh, he's the, the, the college graduate. He has to yep. ask the tough questions. Joey, uh, Joey, um, we usually have three. Oh, it's a very good, it's an excellent question. Right. We usually have Joey is the, uh. He's the philosopher slash skeptic of the paranormal stuff. Unfortunately, he's yep. not here with us tonight. But you yep. know, he's he's gets these questions, and we feel that we had to ask him. And again, we didn't want to stop you during your your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we... no, it's 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 a it's a great question because I mean, let's face it, you're you're talking about something that's drug affected, right? Right. And that that I mean, drug a, a drug effect is a drug effect. Um, you know, whether it's pot, whether it's alcohol, whether it's weed, you know, they all do something different. Whether it's cocaine, whether it's meth, um, you know, you ever you ever stick a heroin addict in a room and a cocaine addict, you know, the heroin addicts on the couch nodding out, and the and the the coke addicts looking out the window, afraid the police are going to come, running up the walls, right? Yeah, they're they're just they're two different states now. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, you know. But 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 for me it was I mean it was the absolute brutal strength of the drug to you know take a guy that was as fit as I was and as young as I was to drop me like a rock. 
Yeah, that's where we were trying to find the name of the drug, but we couldn't we couldn't really come up with it. And then a lot yeah. a, a lot of the it sounds like you like you got shot with a, an elephant tranquilizer. That's how powerful it was. Yeah, it was. It, and and the, and the drug had like two or three names to it. It was a, it wasn't one name or it was one really long name, but I mean it was. I'll have to I'll have to look I'll have to do some research to see because if I read it I'd, I'll recognize it. Right, we're we're, we're reading things and. I'm not good with with uh, yeah. pro- not pronouncing things to begin yeah. with, and then you're talking yeah, about yeah. drugs. Yeah. No, there was a, there was a point that I remembered, but you know, to me, I mean, with everything, it's like it's really it's it's such an insignificant detail to me. Like it doesn't right. matter. Right. It does. Yeah, well, yeah, it, just, it happened, uh, and it was whatever it was was whatever strong it was, as hell. It was, oh, I can tell you, it was strong. <laughs> right, Stephen, we want to thank you wholeheartedly for telling your. In amazing traumatic story. There's no way. Yeah. To, I'm trying to find the, the, the right words to use because yeah, your no, comeback. Brother, it's, it's harrowing. Harrowing. It's there cool. you go. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, in, in the beginning of the short film, I have a, a thing and it says, uh, I am a warrior. You I are. I am a warrior of God. My strength is my tragedy, but my tragedy is my gift. Hmm. And, and that's actually the way I, I view myself. Yeah, because I I believe that everything that I went through was, you know, I I had to be a warrior, and 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 if it wasn't for my strength, I wouldn't have been able to endure such horrific things over such a long period of time. Um, all the times that I baseball bats to your head, all the you know the different things that could have killed me that never did, you know, and of course all the suffering that went along with it, but it was eventually that strength that became. My, you know, that tragedy is actually my true gift. They say that God gives his toughest battles to his strongest, strongest warriors. You know, so that, so that eventually all that is just actually, it's a gift. It's like now, now, now here's your true purpose. That was all just a prelim. Right. Now you're, you're, you're here to, to, to send a message to help other people. You know, I, I actually, when I first started this out, I told my daughters when I was a background actor, I said, I'm going to become a background actor. I'm going to learn how to make a film. I'm going to make a film. And then when I'm done, I'm going to become a motivational speaker and I'm going to help other people. And so I'm getting there. You but are. That's, that's the goal. I would like you to take this opportunity to tell everyone listening in to the Say What Again Billy podcast, all your your outlets that you have, so people can find you and uh, you know read more about you, watch your films on YouTube. So take this time to give all your social media outlets and links to things. Um, yeah, well, well, mine are real simple. Um, it's just Stephen Drury Phillips. Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook um, and on YouTube. So it's very simple. Um, and I have a, uh, I've set up, um, uh, kind of like a GoFundMe page. It's, it's for, it's for the film. Um, it's on give, send, go. Um, and if anybody would like to help in the process of trying to tell the story and uh, make the production happen, um, that would be amazing. I will 110% provide all the links to not only this episode tonight, but I will provide the links to the uh, GoFundMe page, the Give, yeah. Give Send, Go, um, your YouTube outlet, your yeah, Instagram and, and, you page. Know, there, there might be some people out there. You know, there's a lot of people that have a ton of money and there's people that don't have any money. And, and you know, and I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm just a poor guy um, raising I'm a single dad with two kids. But I'll tell you, um, you know, there might be some people that that that, that could get behind a message like this that uh, – you know, that also have an interest in knowing what the movie business is like, what it's like to be an executive producer and, and uh, you know, get out a message. And, you know, uh, you know, on the other the other hand, you know, sometimes 
You know, uh, you know, when I look at this business, I'm like billions of dollars and I, I see all the crap that's out there. And I'm like, man, you know, this, 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 this is this is this could be a cool thing. Well, know? I have some good news for you, Stephen. Um, yeah. We have we've had a actor writer come on our podcast on more than one occasion. He's been on about three times. Uh, his name is Dario Anthony. Um, so I refer you to the Land of Hollywood and the Land of Hollywood Part Two episodes. You can listen in on the podcast and hear him out. And he is currently a writer, and he's actually writing a script that I read already. Um, that nice. he's trying to actually uh, to do himself. And I'm going to refer him to this episode once it drops to give a listen to your story. And I think you guys have something in common when it comes to the writing and the filming. And that'd be something that he might be interested in. Maybe at some point, you know, you yeah, guys you can, never know. You guys and, can and link you know, up. Yeah, you, you never know. And thank you so much for that because, you know, it's it's like anything in life. You know, when I when I first went to go start shooting homeless and, and I'd been putting it off because, you know, you get that fear. Is it going to be any good? Can I do a good job? Can I create something good the way I see it in my head? Can I bring it to, to light? Um, and, and, you know, sometimes that fear stops you. And I went out and I filmed with my daughters and their friends and, 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 and there was the underlying gift, like that relationship with them. And, and it's the same, like you're talking about your friend, um, you know, the people that you meet along the way, it's not about the end of the journey. It's not about eventually winning an Academy Award. It's not about any award. It's not about any trophy. I threw all my tennis trophies away years ago. It's about the people that you meet along the way. Um, and it's about the journey, you know, we, we're also focused on the, the end result that we miss out on, on the true gift, which is the, the, the struggle. It's the, it's the, the, the embracing everything, the people you meet, everything that makes it happen that, you know, the end is the end. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in no rush to get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Steven, listen, I hope we took everyone on a journey today on this episode and I, I would so. like you to thank, I would like to thank you for coming on. I like to thank you for being the first of this type of episode that we've ever done, which was very motivational, inspirational. It was a traumatic and, or, you know, can't, can't sugarcoat a horrifying story. And yeah, we are so glad here at this podcast to see that you know you're you're on a straight path now and we hope oh, yeah. wholeheartedly that you do get into the inspirational speaking to crowds and letting people know and um the story was incredible and we really want to thank you for taking the time out tonight on a monday because mondays no one really likes mondays and we want to we want to thank you wholeheartedly for coming on and i hope that you're not going to be a stranger if you're ever in new york we'd love to have you come on in person uh, I, I, I hope i get up there i'd love to get up there yeah you know, well i mean those are my stomping grounds new york is uh it's changed but we you know we, we we here at the podcast we'd like to talk some some things here in new york and hunker it down oh yeah you know we're bronx yeah, yeah. we're bronx guys so you know Absolutely. as much as we hate new york we love the bronx you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, there's, you know, you, you love where you're from. You always will. Absolutely. Steven, Drewy, Phillips, thank you for coming on. I'm going to hit thank you. you I'll so hit much. you up when this episode drops. Going to take the time now to do some editing and everything. And when it drops, you'll be the first person to know, obviously. Right, and thank thanks you. for coming thank on you. the Say What Again Billy podcast. All right. Thank you so much. It was an honor. And a it privilege. was an honor having you on. Thank you. All right. Thank B you, sir. Bye-bye. This episode of the Say What Again Billy podcast was made possible by Spotify for Podcasters. If you have a podcasting idea and need a way to get it out there, head over to Spotify for Podcasters for all the details to get your very own podcasting idea out there.